Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. Well, this past week, we lost maybe the best owner in Houston sports history, which uh, is a good thing to remember as we're going through this past uh, couple of weeks with some other owners in Houston sports. And, and that guy was Charlie Thomas. He was the Rockets owner from 1992 to 1993. He died of COVID complications at 89 years old just a few days ago. And joining me on the line is a repeat guest with us and the Rockets beat writer for the Houston Post during the entire Charlie Thomas run with the Rockets, my friend Robert Falkoff. Good to have you back, Robert. And I know you really thought a lot of Charlie, didn't you? Yeah, I really did. I mean, I covered several owners during my time, 16, 16 years on the Rockets beat. And Charlie was probably my favorite owner from the standpoint of just um, how down to earth he was, what a nice guy he was. He had a very dry sense of humor. He was very low key, just an all around good guy. Did a lot for the franchise. He really did. And I kind of uh, regret in a way he sold the ball club one year before the Rockets won, you know, the first major pro championship in Houston sports history. So I kind of wish because he really laid the blocks for that championship. And, and he was one year early in selling the team. Uh, of course, he didn't know it at the time, but I wish he had he had been around to, to actually get that Larry O'Brien trophy at midcourt because he certainly deserved it. But what a great, what a great guy. What a great run he had as, uh, as the owner. Well, you just said it, you know, Charlie even was quoted as saying, he would have never sold the franchise if he knew they'd win the next year. Robert, there's no clutch city without Charlie, is there? No, there really uh, there really isn't. You know, I go back to two big events. Both happened in the calendar year of 1992 that were decisions and moves that Charlie Thomas had to make, and they were not easy decisions. Uh, number one was... Charlie fired Don Chaney midway through the 91-92 season. Rudy Tomjanovich was named the reluctant interim head coach for the rest of the year and did pretty well. But they got to the end of the year, and now the owner has to make a decision. Do we keep Rudy or do we go outside the organization and bring in another head coach? And Charlie uh, ultimately made the decision to give Rudy the job full-time. And I think we all would look back at uh, at that move and say, uh, yeah, he got that one right. You know, Rudy going into the Hall of Fame this May, and, of course, that, that doesn't happen without Charlie Thomas saying, uh, you got the green light, this is your ball club, you go with it, and, what a, you know, it proved to be a, a very astute move. The second move in 1992 was after a real spring and a summer of turmoil, Kim Olajuwon and Charlie Thomas were in a bitter feud. I mean, it was it was nasty. Um, and what what really happened was Akeem was upset about his contract. He wanted to make the money that Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, Shaquille O'Neal. He wanted to be paid in that stratosphere with those guys. Well. He wasn't because his contract went all the way out to 94, 95. So this is 92. But at the end of 94, 95, he could have become an unrestricted free agent, which then he could have shot for the moon. But Akeem didn't want, he wanted to be renegotiated and he wanted to be paid at the time. And so, you know, a bitter spring, he was suspended. He actually called Charlie Thomas a coward. 
I mean, it was it was it was rough. And then over the summer and, and over the spring, the Rockets certainly did entertain offers to trade Olajuwon. Fortunately for the franchise, it just didn't happen. And then to start the '92 '93 season, they went to uh, their first two games were the opening games in uh, Yokohama, Japan. And so after all this animosity and, and no talking o- over uh, the summer and a suspension and all of that, and they go to the airport. This is the old Terminal A out at uh, the airport before they had all uh, what they have now, but I think it was A, B, and C. We were in Terminal A. Not not hobby, it's Intercontinental. Yeah, Intercontinental, and, you know, at the time, the ball clubs did not charter, so it was an American Airlines flight. We had to go from Houston to Dallas, change planes, and then take a 14-hour flight from Dallas to Tokyo. When Akeem arrived at the at the airport, Charlie was there with, he had t- he was taking his family and the ice was broken. And I'm looking at an article I wrote first week of November, 1992. I'm just looking at it. It says that Charlie was uh, the one that broke the ice, had not talked to Akeem in months. And Akeem was there and he said, uh, his grandchildren, Charlie's grandchildren were there. And he said, Elijah Juan, do you know this one? Talking about one of his grandchildren. And that's how the ice was broken. Once they got on the plane, they went to Dallas. And from Dallas to Tokyo, it worked out. There was nowhere to go. So Thomas and Olajuwon wound up sitting together during that long flight. And I wrote, instead of watching the movies, Patriot Games and House Sitter on the movie screen, <laughs> they talked and talked and talked. So that was a little clue into how it all began to, to come into focus. But anyway, it cleared the air. Olajuwon started the season uh, in a much better frame of mind. They were, you know, back on speaking terms. And that team didn't start off that well. I think they were 14-16, but the second half of the year, they were just tremendous. 92-93 team, finished strong, lost to Seattle in the second round of the playoffs in Game 7, a great Seattle team that went on to lose in the conference finals to Phoenix. But it, the, the groundwork was laid because the next year, that's when the Rockets you know, won their championship. They started 15-0, and 22-1. I mean, they were ready to go. You know, I credit Charlie with those moves, keeping Rudy T and, and getting Elijah Wan settled. And that's why the Rockets went on to win two championships. Yeah, that was absolutely huge, of course. And I just kind of wondering, did he tell you at the time why he wanted to sell the team? I mean, it looked like they had Elijah Wan for a few more years, and it, it was obviously a really good team that they were making the playoffs at that point. Yeah, you know, I don't know exactly the, the financial, what was going on. You know, of course, he had the car dealerships why you know he chose that time maybe it was just the offer from Les Alexander he felt like that was you know that was something that he couldn't pass up of course he had no way of knowing for sure of course how it would go in the future he felt like he got an offer you know that he felt like he wanted to to take and uh, and that's what happened I mean you just you just really don't know but the thing about it was when he did sell the team he he maintained his seats. I don't know how many he had right by the tunnel there in the old summit. And he was a fixture at every game. And I also remember when the Rockets won the, the uh, game seven against the Knicks in 94, very few people were allowed in the locker room after the game. Charlie Thomas and his wife, Kitsy, 
were two of those people, two of the people I remember being in there right away. So he was so happy for the, you know, for the franchise. And even though he wasn't the owner at the time, he certainly uh, was the, uh, was just a proud, a proud former owner, and certainly was delighted with with how it all came to be. Because, keep in mind, when he bought the team uh, back in '82, they won 14 games, 14, uh, 14 and 68. So he went from one extreme to the other, from 14 wins to an NBA champion. Yeah, a couple of things that I think of right there. We have a couple of stars in Houston that one of them just got traded. One of them is maybe trying to get traded and neither of those guys is it about money. So he, he it's easier to solve. I think when there's money as, as opposed to, we don't like the franchise or we don't think this franchise could win. So uh, it was a good thing that that was all that was wrong with the Akeem Olajuwon situation. I want to go back. You mentioned his beginning. Let's go back to the first things Charlie had to do as the owner. And I believe it was the first year the Rockets decided to trade away two-time MVP Moses Malone. Again, kind of connecting us to the James Harden trade. He has to make a big decision right there. They're trading an MVP, but this one had just taken the team to the finals a little more than a year earlier. So it, to me, that seems like that's a major move that he's making right off the bat. What What are your memories of, of the Moses deal? Yeah, well, they did go to the finals in 81, but but keep in mind, that was kind of a a little bit of a fluky situation. That was a 40 and 42 team during the season. Really, it was a 500 ball club. They just got some unbelievable chemistry going late, went through the playoffs as a big Cinderella and pulled off some remarkable upsets, but then came back in the next year and they were right back to first round out of the playoffs after pretty much a 500 season. So what they had was Moses, if he was going to take up all the money, they really didn't have the money to, to put the supporting pieces around Moses. So, yeah, it was a decision to to tear it down, send Moses to Philly, and put themselves in position to draft uh, Ralph Sampson, number one, in, in uh, the next year. And that happened to work out for him because – Charlie called heads on the coin flip. He took out the advice of his daughter, Tracy, who said, uh, told him to call heads. He did. They got uh, Samson. And the next year, somehow they got back in the coin flips and they got Olajuwon. And so, you know, the new Rockets were, were born. But it was a gutsy move at the time. And it wound up working out for him. Worked out for Philly, too, because Philly won a championship in 83 with Moses. Yeah, it's interesting because before the deal happened, 76ers owner Harold Katz flies to Houston, talks into the morning hours with Charlie. So, you know, it was something where he was influenced to send him to Philly because that's where Moses wanted to play, similar to James Harden we're seeing right now who wanted to go to Brooklyn. You mentioned that Dr. J was there. They, they won the championship after that. You also talked about Charlie's daughter saying, hey, you need to call heads on the coin flip. Do you remember this? She had a dream that they, it was heads. Yep, yeah. That was the one where the, the coin flip where the pressure was on because it was either Samson or Steve Stepanovich. That's a big drop between one and two. So yeah. if they were going to remain relevant, they had to get Samson, and they did. The next year was uh, the pressure was off because their choices were Olajuwon or Michael Jordan. So how are you going to go wrong with that? Well, Portland wound up making the call, and because they had had a contest in Portland, 
the owner called Tails and missed it. And so that's how they got the second coin flip. So he won one by calling it. He won the second one by not calling it. And it worked out both ways. So really a, a fortunate turn for, for the Rockets. And, of course, they, that, that, that group wound up going to the 86 finals. Yeah, it's funny because I, I just think everybody calls heads usually on a coin flip. So that, that was kind of funny. <laughs> Big tales of all things. And, and, and you talk about good stories. Charlie told a great story about Ralph Sampson and the buzzer beater in the conference final to beat the Lakers. Uh, Robert, he said, Jerry Buss and I were 30 feet from the shot. Jerry turned around and said, congratulations, Charlie. And we shook hands. Jerry and I were good friends the whole time I was in the league. I went up to the forum club with five or six people after it all happened. And there were bottles of champagne that started being poured to us by people in the club. I couldn't believe it. Charlie said it was really classy. They started hollering, Charlie beat Boston. Yeah, that, that was a crazy night. Um, I remember that. It was late. I think the game ended about 2.30 in the morning, Houston time. They had a party at the hotel after the game and flew back commercial the next day. I just remember the pilot comes on. We get uh, close to Houston to the airport, and he says, um, just want to tell you guys, there's a few people down there that want to see you. They tell me nobody can get in the airport. It is totally jam-packed, and people on the plane were just, you know, it, couldn't believe it. And we get off the plane and it's just, uh, it, it looked like just people from wall to wall. So what an exciting time that was to, uh, to go to the finals for the Rockets in 86. Yeah. Really cool that he had that kind of relationship with Jerry Buss, who was just so respected at that time. And, and under Charlie's watch, Robert, they didn't only have to make the decision on the Moses trade. Just a few years later, Ralph Sampson's career was a mess because of all the injuries that he had had. And so they decided to deal him. How hard was that to do at that time? Kind of put it into perspective, what was going on with the Rockets and Ralph Sampson and, and what kind of decision that was after building around the twin towers to begin with. Yeah, it was tough because Ralph had started getting injuries. And, and by then we all knew the, the real face of the franchise at that time was Olajuwon. And so they made the move to try to get, get better in the backcourt with sleepy Floyd I think they got Joe, Joe Barry Carroll. Uh, they just, they, they felt like they wanted to go in a different direction to get away from the Twin Towers because of, because of Ralph's injuries. And, you know, it didn't really work out that well for either the Warriors or the Rockets. You know, the Rockets kind of struggled for a while. Again, that's what led to Bill Fitch's firing. And then Don Chaney took over. You know, they had one really good regular season. I think they won 52 games, but again, not a, a real championship contender. And then uh, that's when uh, it got to the point where Cheney was fired and Rudy took over. And then that was the uh, the next wave when, you know, they had gotten Otis Thorpe and Kenny Smith, Vernon Maxwell, Robert Ory was drafted, Sam Cassell. And uh, when Rudy took over, that's when the next wave uh, came along and that team got it all done. Was the Ralph Sampson trade, was that something that you guys thought would happen because of the injuries and what was going on, or did it take everybody by surprise at that point? It sort of was a surprise, but, uh, I mean, I think Bill Fitch had kind of soured on, on Ralph. Ralph was really good as a rookie, really good second year. But again, in those once the knee injuries happened and he wasn't able to really – 
sore the way he had previously. His efficiency declined, so it wasn't that much of a surprise. It was just going away from the Twin Towers and trying to be a more balanced team. And they really thought a lot of Sleepy Floyd that he was going to be a, a great point guard, and that never really happened. But Sleepy was was productive to a degree, but not uh, a superstar. You know, they searched for a long time, and that was something Akeem wanted. He wanted a great point guard. He wanted a penetrator. I don't know that they ever actually got to that point. Uh, they never got like a true 15 assist point guard, but they did have combination. They had. Uh, Kenny Smith for, for what he did, the outside shooting. Scotty Brooks, who was just a, a, a little bit of a bulldog and, and really could just play, played his heart out every night. And then when they got Sam Cassell, that was sort of the three-headed point guard monster. So in the end, it, it was enough to get them, you know, what they needed to get over the hump. Yeah, because if you look at it, I mean, the Cassell, the drafting of him was uh, right after probably the the Charlie Thomas sold the team that that draft because he he was right before the championship season yep. rookie that championship season and then that was the final piece but pretty much the the rest of the puzzle like we talked about the clutch city puzzle was was put in place by uh, both Charlie and Steve Patterson was Charlie a hands on owner how would you describe his owning style compared to uh, maybe some of the other owners that we see today no he was not uh, he he basically let the general manager run the show and then when he was needed he would be you know he had a business to run he he had a car dealerships he had things going on so charlie believed in letting um, you know, first ray patterson and then steve patterson run the show but charlie had such a dry sense of humor at one point uh, ray patterson was the general manager and charlie basically said hey uh, this was in '86, around '86, when they were, you know, got to the finals. He said, "Hey, Ray, you can, you can, you know, you can have this job as long as you want it. You know, uh, you're good." And basically, what it amounted to a lifetime uh, contract before the coin flips. Actually, is when this happened. So then uh, they went to the the coin flip for uh, Samson. They went to the coin flip for Olajuwon, and after the second coin flip. Charlie said, uh, in a very dry way, says, you know, with Ray, he said, Ray's not going to be coming back, and I'm not going to be coming back for any more coin flips. And if we do, you know, uh, that lifetime contract I gave him, I might have to declare him legally dead. So <laughs> that was <laughs> that was his way of saying, hey, we're through the coin flips, and now it's time to go to work and uh, and win some ball games." And then the other funny thing I, I recall is when they were going through the, uh, you know, the kind of the Cold War with Olajuwon, and Charlie was kind of like, well, you know, he said, well, Charlie, he called you a coward. I mean, what, what's going on? He goes, well, you know, he said some things, and but, you know, um, my wife, Kitsy, said worse to me, and we're still married. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's all good. That's great. So he was that kind of guy, just a very laid back guy, and he let uh, he let his people that he hired uh, do the work, and then when he was needed to make uh, uh, key decisions, uh, he would do so. But what a great guy! I mean, he would do things. He he would have uh, he at one point he lived in River Oaks. You know, I always remember uh, he would invite people, even the media, to his Christmas party at his home. Ninety one, I think, the Rockets went out to play the Lakers in the first round of the playoffs. He had a home in Malibu, and he brought the entire, put the entire traveling party on a bus, 
took him out to Malibu for a, like a, a cookout. I mean, he was just that kind of guy, his family. They, uh, they were so kind and generous and never, ever tried to put on airs uh, about being rich or anything. I, mean, I remember calling his wife at home one day, and that was back in the day when you could actually pick up the phone and call the owner, and Kitsy answered the phone, and I said, hey, I need to talk to Charlie. Is he there? And he said, no. You know, the grandkids wanted to go to McDonald's. They wanted a Happy Meal. So Charlie's out getting the kids a Happy Meal at McDonald's. I mean, okay, well, you know, this is just this is the kind of guy he was. Just a, a doting father, grandfather, nice guy with everybody, never put on airs. And that's what made him really uh, uh, such a special person in my mind. Did it feel like a little bit more like a family type run, uh, ownership than maybe you would see in today's sports? Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, the Rockets didn't have that big of a staff back in in those days. I mean, they had, you know, I don't know how many people, probably not more than 20 in the front office. And Charlie was so nice to, to, to everyone. Everybody loved Charlie. Let me tell you one other story. Joe Jellybean Bryant, Kobe's dad, played for the Rockets in 83. He was on that 14 and 68 team that took him to last place and allow, allowed him to be in the coin flip for Samson. Joe Bryant said at the end of that season, well, uh, I don't know if I'm going to play anymore. And Charlie hired Joe Bryant to work as a car salesman at the dealership, Charlie Thomas Ford. So after about a year, I went over and interviewed Joe, and he said, yeah, this is great. And Charlie's wife, Kitsy, and Joe's wife, Pam, were, I think, very good friends. And so giving a guy like that a chance to kind of reevaluate his career, and Joe said, you know, maybe I'll do this. Well, he went over there, he sold cars for Charlie, and then I think the next year he said, nah, I think I'm going to go back and play some more basketball. So he went to Italy and played about 10 more pro seasons in Italy. At the time he went to work for Charlie as a car salesman, he has his four-year-old, roughly, I think it was four-year-old, preschooler anyway, kid named Kobe. I think we kind of know what happened. <laughs> uh, he became a pretty good basketball player. So we, unbeknownst to any of us, you know, he had his little child named Kobe, and he was going to work for Charlie Thomas Ford to support his family and raise his family and amazing how it all worked out. And I think about, you know, when Kobe Bryant became such a legend, this man is a four-year-old, didn't know who you were, but you were there somewhere in the summit watching your dad play for the Rockets. Yeah, I mean, just uh, a big fan also of the Rockets, like you said, even after he sold the team, you know, he would not only go to the games like you said, but... He, according to his son-in-law, didn't miss any of the games on television. He'd watch them with his eight grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, three daughters. So he stayed so involved with the with the team. And I guess the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Charlie, is do you feel like he sort of set in place not just the building blocks for Clutch City and, and what happened with the championships, but, you know, the Rockets were still trying to get a foothold as a franchise at that point, they'd only been in Houston for less than a decade when he bought the team. I think it was around a, a less than a decade, maybe a decade at that point. So did, was, was he really key into this becoming a thing in Houston that could happen long-term? The Rockets could stay here. I mean, I, it, obviously it, it wasn't super tenuous maybe when he bought the team, but uh, was it something where without him, we wouldn't see the Rockets taking such a foothold in this community? 
Yeah, no doubt. I, I think it's true because the previous owner, it was the Maloof family from, and they were, you know, they were from Albuquerque, New Mexico. They had the businesses with the uh, casinos and the beer uh, distributorships. And George Maloof, who bought the team in 79, died suddenly. And so when they went to the finals in 81, his son, uh, Gavin, was 24 years old. So imagine an NBA team having a 24-year-old owner, you know, and Gavin was, was good. His brother, Joe, Gavin and Joe were the guys that kind of were in charge. Uh, Ray Patterson was a general manager and he kind of held things together. But, you know, that's instability because those those kids were young and, and really malicious and decided, you know, we, we need to go ahead and sell the team. This is too much to put on the plate of these boys. So they sold it. Charlie, Charlie bought the team at a very tenuous time. And once he was in there, you know, everything solidified, I think. And so, yeah, he, he established the foundation for decades of rocket stability going forward, because up until that time, you know, it had been, uh, been kind of you know, hit and miss and very unstable in the ownership situation. So 11 years and everything was on great footing by the time he handed off to Les Alexander. I just want to mention that, you know, you you came to Houston in 78. You were Rockets beat right, I believe, from 80 to 95 for 15 years. You've been gone for a pretty long time, but I know you still keep up with what's going on with the Rockets what did you make of the Harden trade and what's going on with the team right now and, and how they handled the whole thing and, and what they got in return for him? I think they pushed all their chips to the to the middle. I think James Harden did a lot for Houston. No, there's no doubt about it. But they did everything he wanted. And they were going to live or die with him. And it kind of rubs me the wrong way that a guy that you did everything for then at the end says, okay, well, it didn't quite work out. I'm I'm gone. Well, no, you put us in this position. So be a good soldier here because we did everything you wanted. And so from that standpoint, I don't think you can like say, okay, I want this, I want this, I want this. And then, okay, well, it didn't work out. Okay, I'm gone. You guys deal with it because you've left the, the franchise kind of bankrupt in that in that regard. So that kind of bothers me a little bit. But I do recognize what James did for the city. He created a lot of excitement. And they just have to hope that these draft picks and everything, uh, the haul they got works out. At some point, they did need to to have a cleansing. It wasn't going to go on forever. You just can't continue to do that and mortgage the future, mortgage the future, mortgage the future. At some point, the bill comes due. It's just too bad that the way he went out, I think it, that leaves me a, a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Last thing I want to ask you about, I don't know if we've ever discussed this. Now, you were doing some analysis on Channel 20. The games used to be on Channel 20. Didn't you used to come on, on, on halftime of some of the games and, and do some analysis, either halftime or postgame? Yeah, on TV, I did uh, kind of a postgame little wrap-up that was sponsored by the Houston Post. And then I was on the radio before the game. So I had a couple of spots that were sponsored by the Post, and I would go on. And uh, you got a good memory if you remember that. Yeah, the thing I, I wanted to ask you about is on Channel 20 in the 80s, was somebody that went on to bigger and bigger and bigger things. She's now not only on ESPN, but she's calling 
NFL playoff games on on Prime. Do you have memories of Hannah Storm? What do you remember about Hannah Storm when she was just starting out? Yeah, I know Hannah, knew Hannah very well. When she came to Houston, she had been just a radio reporter. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was Corpus Christi, but uh, she went to Notre Dame. I remember her showing up in L.A. for a playoff series with just her little recorder. And you think about what all she, what she went on to and how big of a, a star she became. I remember having lunch with her. She went to Atlanta. She worked at... She worked in Atlanta for a while. I remember we went over there when the Rockets played the Hawks. We had lunch in the CNN Center one day. Very nice and had great success and really a good person. And I'll tell you somebody else that I knew, Jim Nance. He had gone to the University of Houston, uh, was just a, uh, you know, he wrote golf for the school paper. So I got to know him. He did a little radio show, and I remember he had me on a couple times uh, for that. And then he went to Salt Lake and worked out there. So, yeah, there's been some great Pam Oliver, another one who passed through Houston, was at KHOU, Channel 11, uh, started off there. So some great uh, sportcasting talent. And you look at them now and you say, yeah, I knew that person back in the day. So really a credit, I guess, to Houston of uh, the type of sports journalism talent that they've turned out over the years. Yeah, Pam Oliver covered the Packers game this past weekend. Jim Nance was covering the Chiefs game this past weekend. And like I said, Hannah Storm was doing the Amazon Prime. I believe that was from the first week of the uh, playoffs. Yeah, and, and think about those three people. You think about the longevity at, at a national level and how competitive it is. And just think about, what, three decades probably for all of those people? And nice people. I mean, really, Jim Nance is just a – they're not trying to step on people and get to the top. I mean, they, they just did it because they're genuine good people and they have talent, and that's what you love to see. That sounds great. Well, thanks so much for doing this and, and reminiscing a little bit about Charlie Thomas. Hopefully, Rockets fans – uh, understand his importance a little bit more now if they didn't know it and you know a lot of people I know if you're 30 years old you have no memories that Charlie Thomas was the owner of the Rockets so I, I feel like it's you know something that I think a lot of people out there should know about if you're a Rockets fan I hope so um, he definitely left a, a big mark on the franchise and yeah Rocket fans Clutch City um, you know uh, uh, a great deal to Charlie Thomas Well, thanks again, Robert. And just uh, for our listeners, just a reminder that we'll be back with a regular show with me and Steven just talking about what's going on with everything in Houston sports, as we usually do. And you can always message us through Twitter, Facebook, email info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. Stay healthy and safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.